that's unhosed. Early one morning the sun was shining. I was laying in bed, wondering if she had changed at all, if her hair was still red. Some folks said all lives together, sure were gonna be rough. Never did like when my so many dress on the back just wasn't big enough. She said about the side of the road and was just my shoes. Headed off to the east coast, you know I'll pay some dues getting through. Tangled up in blue. I got a job in the great north woods, working for a cook for a spell. Never did like it all that much one day the act just fell. Okay, we're on here. So I have a new microphone set up. Hopefully I can use this one most of the time. And I, uh, somebody did me a troubleshoot, or Chris, thank you, Chris, did me a troubleshoot in the uh, OAS thingy that I, OBS. Uh, so now I have a mic that is set up so I don't have to hold it because that is kind of goofy. It doesn't really feel right for these. Uh, yes, the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services, forerunner to the CIA, Wild Bill Donovan, Alan Dulles, all those guys. Uh, yeah. Uh, like you kind of wonder if like that whole group of people and then the structures that they built in government after World War II, if those people were not essentially like the final archons, like they were the, the people who most grasped the real implications of a worldwide capitalist order headquartered in the United States. And they saw what it would mean to maintain that. And the answer was they would need to wield this uh, this um, mixed economic uh, sort of hybrid system that attempts to... Uh, Vent off social pressure in the form of democratic activity, uh, rule of law, all that cute stuff that the humans like to have fun with. All those adorable little things that they like to distract themselves with from the reality that they are now trapped in a machinery that they are only participators passively in. And so if that's the case, then the only positions of real power in the world are going to be in those extra uh g- extra democratic structures 
of power that are able to use the state to private ends, specifically the social ends of this class of people who were unified in being the scions of the ruling class. This wasn't even upstriving, uh, this was not upstriving uh, middle class guys. These were the rulers of the, the elite of the elite looking at the world, seeing how it has changed, and recognizing that capitalism in winning had dethroned human sovereignty. And so the only place that you could even hope to put your and therefore your class's interests forward is in control of those structures of government that are going to be able to move this fucking thing uh, and override at every point any theoretical democratic checkpoint. Because as long to the, if the, there was a time when the uh, capitalism that was being born with the American state was weak enough that that state could have really challenged it for power. But that moment, after 1991, ended. You can't hear me? God damn it. Maybe I need to turn up the volume on this thing. Does this help? I've got a volume tuner over here. Is that better? I hope you can hear me because I feel like I'm onto something here. Okay. And I think all of those weird rituals that those freaks like to get off to is really them who have gone to the end of history. They are, do not believe in God. Like guys like Alan Dulles or George Bush, these guys have been absolutely hollowed out by, by being in charge for so long because we know that that's what idle wealth does in the imperial centers. It liberalizes you. It abstracts you. Today's fire-bearing in New England, the first generation of capitalists there were fire-breathing uh, uh, Calvinists. These are literally the, the direct descendants of Puritans, people whose grandfathers fucking... Uh, pressed Giles Corey between boards to get him to fucking uh, to plead guilty or not guilty to charges of being a witch. And that by the time, so you get the Adamses, by the time those guys seize power in the executive branch in the form of the Adams family, da 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 da. You've already got John Adams being a Congregationalist, which what the fuck is that? And like flirting with deism. And then John Quincy Adams is just fully post-Christian. Like we know that from his diaries. Like he, he, he was a Unitarian. So you go from fucking Calvinists to Unitarians in only a few generations in the same conditions. And those conditions being the very soft center of urban, comfortable Bourgeois life. So that means these people's the blue bloods of the of the twentieth century who not only had had that like civilizing uh, experience, but that then had gone through the civil uh, civil war, world uh, the the labor war on behalf of capital that they carried out uh, and against the workers. The, then the fucking wars against fellow bourgeois in in uh, the in Germany and in Japan over the spoils of the world. 
They saw the 20th century in all its horribleness. They were and they were cultured and sophisticated. So they knew the the, the they had a voc, a cultural vocabulary for explaining this that is the same one that marks counterculture. It's the same one that marks proletarian uh, counterculture because it, it it critiques the system. So these people have no religious belief. What they believe in is that this thing is the real power on earth. This thing, this imperative, profit motive, whatever you want to go, whatever you want to describe it, in the form of a giant suction machine that takes resources from one end of the globe and brings them to the center of it, and then provides comfort and power in that relationship. These are the ones of those now deracinated ruling class elite who looked at the world, saw it as it was, and said, I will consecrate my bonds to this new God and then carry out its will. And in so doing, I will be of the priestly class. I will maintain my position as a fucking Brahmin. And these are literally Boston Brahmin in some cases. And so the state they built, the national security state, which then – and you can't just – that's not just the CIA. That's the RAND Corporation. Uh, That's uh, the NSA, obviously. It's it's the uh, domestic intelligence bureaus like the FBI. Uh, And then it's it's, uh, technology shit. It's DARPA. It's the internet. It's literally the internet. It's the nuclear – it's the nuclear arms race. It's all of these things that are carrying out America's, oh, and let's not forget financial institutions like the motherfucking Federal Reserve. And uh, the uh, Bretton Woods system constructed after World War II that then distributes like a, a global uh, a currency imperium courtesy of the World Bank and the IMF. None of these things are permeable through politics, and all of them operate on along the axis of doing the disinterested uh, aim of capitalism. But they're in they're in conflict with these institutions that have within them a popular participation. We do vote. We do have elections. We do administer the economy through laws, which are technology. And it's a necessary technology to keep this fucking thing going. And there is a dynamic by which the social pain created by capitalism is then met with some punishment and some amelioration in some distribution. And the entire American post-war project is distributing that pain throughout this new global uh, uh, economic order. And you could not do that demographic democratically by definition because – you cannot sh- you you um, it goes against profit, and you will you will res- you will give up to the degree that they make you give up. That human inst- humans acting through human institutions, like political parties, like cultural expression, like uh, labor unions, those things press the case on behalf of the human fucking race. But these institutions at the top are manned completely by people who have consecrated themselves spiritually to capitalism and will never give it up until it's destroyed everyone but them. They have to be dethroned. 
And that means that they have to be uh, resisted by humans through human cooperative action. And the reason this matters is because so much of what we call political commentary and action in this fucking country is moralism. We are, tr- we are operating on the assumption that people are making decisions to make the world this way. And that means that there is this ability for us to convince people en masse to act differently. People are going to act the way that their incentive structures, their individual incentive structures, uh, tell them to act. It's not going to be through decisions. Now, people are going to change their minds and they're going to be radicalized, but it's not going to be by those encounters. It's going to be by encounters in their lives that are then filtered through culture. And the reason this isn't a pedantic distinction is that which way you understand that dynamic determines how you interact with the world, how you interact with politics, how you emotionally invest in the spectacle of online political participation, how, what, what you bring to, uh, what priorities you bring to in-person organizing. These are all determined by, do you think that this is a material struggle where people are going to have to cooperate along a desire to improve their material conditions collaboratively? resisting these structures, these dead-handed structures being carried out by people that one way or another are zombified. And if they wake up, they will be replaced with somebody else who is zombified. You have to create a counter-pressure among people acting that way, together. If you think it's the other way around, if you think we're all just making actions out of our own free will, and then eventually enough of us just see how wrong it is in some abstract sense, and then act that way, vote different, get a different job, behave differently in any way, not coordinated to a material aim, but to a moral position, you're pissing in the wind. You cannot affect change that way. You will provide fodder for the people who are going to do the work, but you're only going to be spitting into a fucking windmill. So that is what the central point that I've been trying to make about all of these questions about how to engage with the world in the imaginative space of politics. Like, what is, How are we supposed to fill that gap that we all have? And it boils down to this, that it is humanity versus a abstracted principle carried out by people, not because of their individual choices, but because what, is, what power selects for within its own structures committed to it. They might one by one decide that they can't live that way anymore and they will be replaced because they are not acting in coordination with anyone else. Because many of these people are benefiting from the system because we don't have class consciousness when we're all consumers. They understand themselves, even if they feel guilty, they understand themselves to be benefiting from the system materially. And that is going to commit them to their material ends. So that means that no matter what you think your beliefs are, depending on where you find yourself in the social strata, you will, not you individually, but you collectively and over a large population will choose this, which means that these organizations are all filled with people who have made the moral choice that is going to keep them where they are. Any horrible thing they see, they will be able to rationalize away from 
exposure to, moral exposure to. They will perform more ritual politics, but they will do that to distract from the need for material politics because they feel threatened in a way below, below consciousness by material politics. And the reason it's hard to talk this way is because when you hear things like, you do this, you make this decision, people think they're talking about, you're talking about me, saying that I am fated and structured. No. Individuals can choose against this. And they do all the time. But there is no cumulative effect that actually challenges power that emerges from that because the spots are filled. Everybody, after God died and we had to bring heaven to earth, everybody basically has had the same idea Everybody, no matter where they are uh, politically, if they have an idea, like some people don't. Some people have bigger fish to fry. But people who are modern subjects enough to go through life imagining heaven, which we now are, to be moral, uh, required to strive for, right? And it has to be a material heaven because, remember, we got rid of, we got rid of, we cannot all imagine the kingdom of heaven because we all have to live together now. And it's more real over time as we break from the land. It is less real. The heaven, we cannot feel an ineffable heaven. And also we live longer and we spend more time sitting around. There's a lot of things that make it so that we cannot imagine heaven collectively and express ourselves politically through that lens. We have to imagine making the world a certain way. And everybody from arch capitalists to communists to... uh, Everybody, like I said, who is trying to engage with modernism and is not trying to, you know, be reactionary to the point of wanting to return to, like, hunter-gatherer society or something. Like, the non-reactionary, progressive face of all political uh, expressions from the left to the right, including fascism, is a place where, at peace, where robots do all the work. Everybody gets to hang around and robots do all the work. That's what, that's what all the mid-century visions of modernity, whether they were in the Soviet Union or in the West, were about, they had the same iconography and they had to, pointed towards the same goals. Because if we were going to increase, if we were going to keep developing technology and then having that technology's uh, resources distributed broadly through a population so that people can participate in creating a culture around economic activity, uh, then eventually you get enough socially controlled technology that you have an overabundance. And then what do you do? The answer is you go to space. You keep building, but not in the, uh, in the death spiral uh, way that our program of capitalism is pulling us towards, one where we solve all these problems because we're democratically deciding, either because we've purged the world of non-Aryans uh, Uh, or we've used democratic principles like in the West to bring about this consensus reality through reform, or in the Soviet sphere, uh, the working class has fully overthrown capitalism and has socialized the means of production, which is what Marx was dreaming for, 
and which I think is really something that is possible. Whether we're going to do it is a mother, much different question, but I think given the raw material of humanity, I think it could have been built or, and could be built. And because that's what we're imagining, modern subjects trying to live together, what do you make? You make a world at peace filled with robots doing the work. Whether it's because we killed everybody else off or because we overthrew a system of capitalism, we are doing that. So everybody is pursuing their political aims to get to that point. But they're doing it through institutions that are not doing it for that reason. The institutional logic is not pulling you towards this because there's no human ballast to it. There's no humane social reality. There is no conception of like the human race as such that can survive the, the logic of the thing. It's, it's, part of, it's one of the many things that is conditioned out of the transaction to make it uh, frictionless. And so everybody thinks they're using the tools of capitalism to direct us towards this, uh, this utopia, whether it's Hitler, Stalin, Mao uh, with the great, le- great Leap Forward, uh, or the fucking uh, New Dealers, uh, you know, or frankly, even uh, the, like Neo, the, uh, the Taft Republicans, if they weren't dreaming of, you know, annihilative apocalypse. Uh, And so they're all using capitalism to make this thing happen. And what they're getting is the technological development, but the technology develop, the technological development put to the, the goal of coercing labor out of people because you have to extract profit. And that means uh, alienation and that ha- alienation has to be stored somewhere. And it is stored in the surplus profit that is then enjoyed by the people at the top. And it starts off as a social uh, programming, but it becomes a transcendental property that motivates human behavior over large populations. And the historical role of the bourgeois is to take technology, this thing that is being used to compete between these ruling classes that are like not recognizing the fact that we're all human beings. And then technology creates, gets to an inflection point where we understand humanity to be a different thing than we did before. And, and the technology exists to coordinate labor and reduce labor inputs. That's the important part. Now, you, there's a point, though, in capitalism where if you, use too much te- uh, if you do too much capital investment in technology – you, you get a crash. You get a terminal crash uh, because what are, what's everybody doing? You know, it boils down to what is everybody doing when they're not fucking working? And so they're put to work while profit is extracted and democratic deliberation is removed from the system. So by the time you get to the 70s and 80s, after the high point of like space exploration at a point where everybody thought we'd be on Mars in 2020, absolutely. You ask a person on the street in 1971, are we going to be on Mars in 2021? They'd be like, of course, we're going to have a fucking embassy on Mars. There's going to be, there is going to be a McDonald's on Mars. And that's because NASA was part of our 
folk collective dream, be it popular front left wing or uh, like small town Babbitt Republican to build it or like Walt Disney, the fantasy, like Tomorrowland. We're all going to use capitalism to get there. Use use market uh, logic to get there. Meanwhile, you're building a machine that is sufficiently advanced to no longer need the human inputs and therefore can distribute less of that profit to them and therefore increase the profit that it's the the profit accumulation where it's supposed to go. It makes more, the system more efficient. It rationalizes the system towards total profit extraction. And as pockets of humanity that have been able to band together politically to make some sort of social demand on capitalism, as they lose their ability to resist, uh, they lose their material comfort and they become precarious. The giant drop in life expectancy in the Soviet Union, thirty uh, something like 20 years over the course of a decade, the, the largest peacetime one on record. And that could happen because of uh, the relative... L- Honestly, the relative lack of comfort there that could have bred like social rebellion. The United States got because we've been de- and because we were more developed. The United States was more developed in the center. Their their workers had gotten a better deal longer because they were always the headquarters. They were the most advanced part of capitalism. They were not a backwater like the Russians were. Russia was not supposed to be where the fucking Soviet where the Re- communist revolution began. Maybe only as a spark, not as like the expression of it. So by the time <clears throat> the system comes into equilibrium uh, with the oil shocks of the 70s, it's like, okay, we're repricing these exchanges now because we've reached a certain point of connectivity uh, and, and overproduction, frankly, that we're going to have to start redistributing this stuff. We're going to have to start redistributing things away from certain populations. And the less represented you were in government through the bourgeois, the expressions of bourgeois politics, uh, the less able you were to resist it. And so that's why in America, when we had the shock therapy of the 70s, which came before the shock therapy Russia had in the 90s, uh, the people who felt it most, most viscerally were, of course, the urban African-American population. The war on drugs and the, the, uh, was a direct response to the uh, – Destruction of the economic base of the uh, black working class in the American cities. Uh, people think of uh, people think of deindustrialization as something that started after NAFTA, uh, and some, or maybe they think it was the '80s with the Japanese. It started in the '50s internally, and then thro- and then started to really ramp up in the '60s. And the first places to see industrial employment really collapse were. Uh, the pop were in the cities that uh, black people had moved to from the South during the great migration uh, all the way through to post-World War II uh, to work in factories. Uh, And so they, um, they were able to build enough sufficient internal political will to do the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement is an expression to which degree the black community, once it was, in the condition of like urban life was able to build itself into a coherent class response to exploitation. It really is. You get to the cities and it's like, it, it, it's, 
it it super accelerates the process by which a coherent resistance to exploitation can be expressed. So that's why you went from, you know, uh, the imposition of neo of apartheid after the Civil War with relatively little co- uh, resistance from the ex-slave community because of their lack of political organization, because they had been or lack of uh, social uh, sophistication, because they'd been fucking slaves. And then that they and then during through the 1890s there was a languishment in uh, in the sharecropper economy. But then with increased efficiency in technology of agriculture, there was a lot of extra hands and un, unfeedable mouths in the South, and it led to the Great Migration. And so uh, those black populations got access to those jobs, but those were the first jobs to go because these, while they were been able to press the civil rights movement, which was a sort of the bourgeois revolt, like the, the uh, it's equivalent to like this. Essentially, what we got is you got a 1789 revolution. You got a bourgeois revolution uh, in the form of the civil rights movement, and it's apogee. But then there was never a kickover to uh, like a, the next level of radicalism, uh, and it's because the engine of that resistance, which had been these emergent urban communities, began to unravel in the face of deindustrialization. And so the pressure went away. And what happened was is that those uh, black uh, leaders who had made it sufficiently advanced into the system were given a deal. Go along with this in exchange for your own personal security within this new uh, system. You are now going to be a winner. You're going to be able to have a house. You're going to be able to find uh, employment in the system. And people took the deal because there was nothing else on the table. There is no blaming anybody for selling out because at all of these points in America, there is nothing else on the table because we never got a worldwide uh, working class coordinated response to capitalism. And so everybody's community, however they understood it, was destroyed in detail. And so that means that the conditions uh, of... uh, austerity implied on America are going to be endured first by the people who have the least amount of political influence within the system. Some people make it into the new strata and then can reproduce themselves with thanks to affirmative action. But most people are going to fall into the maw of prison system uh, and, and, uh, and uh, the welfare roles to the extent that those existed and uh, low wage labor. Uh, And the reason that this, was allowable because other groups were spared. If you had gotten a home by the 1970s, you were consecrated in your, in your property. You now have an investment instrument that will ride the market and guarantee you uh, security forever. Congratulations. You now get to vote like a capitalist. And they did. They started voting like capitalists. It's like when Thatcher... Uh, one of her biggest coups was in allowing people to buy their flats from the council estates that they lived in. Because unlike the United States, the, uh, the, the British went in a huge spree of public uh, housing manufacture after World War II. Because they, they didn't have to fucking be the, 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 um, the army of the world anymore. We could do that. We're going to spend... 
we're going to, our Keynesian engine of post-war prosperity is going to be our fucking defense industry. It's going to be uh, every bomb we build now and every fucking uh, B-52 bomber and, 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 and this bill of what we're going to do. That's going to make be our uh, uh, thing. We're going to subsidize housing for people uh, in order to give them access to the middle class, but it's going to be through private enterprise that's just uh, subsidized. Whereas the British, because they were handing over to us the money they had, they could spend on public housing. But uh, Thatcher in the 80s offered people the option of buying their flats, and a bunch of them did, and then they started voting Tory. A lot of the older anti-Corbyn labor people who torched him in nineteen in 2019 didn't do it because of anti-Semitism. They did it because, and they did and they did it because of Brexit, but not because they understood that Brexit is in the working class's best interest. It's because they didn't vote as working class people. They are homeowners. Many of them weren't working at all at, in any way. They are homeowners living on their state financed investment. And that's what the whiter working class with more political pre- representation got. I mean, these are the people who actually make the political structure, who make it up, who fill it. There is a certain understanding of best interest there, especially since these people all think of themselves as Americans. You got to remember this. These people, all, everyone here is thinking of themselves as an American. So their best interest, their understanding of their self-interest does have a social element. But it is not about class. It is bourgeois notions. And now our current crisis of faith in institutions boils down to the fact that as uh, our instruments of government are more and more carried out, uh, or the actual, uh, the actual meaningful decisions made about our economic destiny are not democratically arrived at in any way. Let's just get that. That is an axiom that has to be accepted as a first principle. There, that they have been, there's no more human hand in the set. Not that humans aren't doing it. People are in these institutions. They're not all algorithms, but they have no, they cannot be influenced by the public is what I mean. The way that anyone in the political system really can be to some extent or theoretically could be and is to one degree or another. And so that was true and that's been true for a while now, but most people until like 2008 didn't really notice because if you had a house, you were pretty much set. And those are the people who voted. So they understood the economy as this thing that's going up. Meanwhile, you're gutting uh, these inner cities. You're gutting these uh, Rust Belt towns. White people in the Middle West are now starting to have the same cultural pathologies that black people in the cities had that you used to say was uh, actually, you used to say was uh, genetic. And all of a sudden you've got these poor white people acting like poor black people. What, what's going on? But these are people are, they either weren't in the homeowning class or they fell out of it individually. So they never contributed to the discourse. Their pain was drowned out by the general prosperity of the land-owning class. But now, since 2008, which was the beginning of mass dispossession, mass uh, evictions after uh, they just decided to, in one of the most single crucial decisions of the entire Obama presidency, 
uh, to bail out banks instead of letting people keep their houses, which they absolutely could have done. It was a choice made, not democratically, that no one, if you'd said, hey, we're going to put that on a ballot initiative, do the banks or give people their houses, you, what do you think would have won with about 95% of the vote? Wasn't on the ballot. Because those decisions are not democratically arrived at, even if the people who make them are elected. What we can do is fight about fucking... Uh, and, and ever since then, people have been aware, not all the same amount, but in growing and growing amounts, Holy shit, all this stuff is bullshit. All these promises are lies. There is no future where we're all living together in the robot paradise. Now, <clears throat> there are some people who still live in the, believe in the robot paradise, but there are guys like Elon Musk who believe that the robot paradise will be on the other end of a genocide, and they're okay with it. I'd say, like, your hardcore Nazi dumbass types think that too. They think we're going to do a genocide... Not a, not a um, formal one. We're not going to do ovens or anything. We're just going to put up a wall between the place that has food and water and the place that doesn't have food and water. And then you're just going to kind of wait for the noise to die down. Meanwhile, you're building your little pleasure dome through your new technology. Now, of course, that's a fantasy, and it would break down, and these guys would all die screaming too, but they would be the last ones to go. Because they're the ones most entranced to it and they will go at the end because their position is too compromised for anyone to, who, to enter it to be a human person. I think that's the most important thing. At, at a crucial spiritual level, these people are not human. That doesn't mean that they should be killed or that it's morally permissible to do so. They, are, they, ha, they were human. But the way that they view the world, the way that they're emotionally wired to understand the world around them is not what human beings understand it to be when they talk about those things. I'm sorry about the balance. Somebody is mad about the balance. Is that better? I just clicked something. Is that better? So, yeah, they're lizards. That's why David Ick was very good. It's worse now? It is better. Okay. Uh, You guys are going to have to shut the fuck up about the balance. I don't even know what that means. I'm sorry. I don't know what balance means. I'll have uh, Chris talk me through it. All right. So let's, I, I, I promised Black Jacobins and God damn it, I'm going to try to get there, even though that is a hell of a, a diversion. Fuck. Sorry. Uh, so in a very similar sense, uh, the, the white people of San Domingue, we're not human beings the way that even others at the time would have thought of themselves. Uh, and that is why the treatment that uh, 
James Gibbs of Dessalines Massacre of the Whites after uh, the expulsion of the French uh, is so well uh, considered because he acknowledges that it was um, uh, he acknowledges that it was a mistake and that it helped kind of doom Haiti to uh, uh, underdevelopment, but he does not shed any uh, any fucking tears for the planters, and it's because to live that way while believing yourself to be a civilized person is to be a I don't know, what's the word for it? A dibbic or something? A demon? Something that has the form of a human being understands the world in human terms, sensory-wise, but responds to the world emotionally in a way that does not recognize like a dimension of humanity. It doesn't recognize others as the self, in any, like at a visceral level. And of course, that's a process that has been happening over time and is, is intensifying as technology allows us to intensify. Uh, and, or it's being distributed more broadly, but it's like it's not just being distributed. Like culturalization also makes people more empathetic. What this is, it's it's the culture plus the proximity to mo- horrifying violence. It's the it's the listening to your fucking uh, your your chamber music and watching Moliere next to a goddamn charnel house. Yeah, so uh, I just wanted to read this part that uh, James does talking about that. Um, Early in the new year, 1805, the whites in Haiti were massacred by the order of Dessaline. All histories are full of this. Whatever. And then he says, The massacre of the whites was a tragedy, but not for the whites. For those old slave owners, those who burnt a little powder in the arse of a Negro, who buried him alive for insects to eat, who were all well treated by Toussaint and who, as soon as they got the chance, began their old cruelties again. For these, there is no need to waste one tear or one drop of ink. The tragedy was for the blacks and the mulattoes. It was not policy, but revenge, and revenge has no place in politics. The whites are no longer to be feared, and such purposeless massacres degrade and brutalize a population, especially one which was just beginning as a nation and had had so bitter a past. The people did not want it. All they wanted was freedom, and independence seemed to promise that. Christophe and other generals strongly disapproved. Had the British and Americans thrown their weight on the side of humanity, Dessalines might have been curbed. As it was, Haiti suffered terribly for the resulting isolation. Whites were banished from Haiti for generations, and the unfortunate country ruined economically. Its population lacking in social culture had its inevitable difficulties doubled by this massacre. That the new nation survived at all is forever to its credit, for if the Haitians thought that imperialism was finished with them, they were sorely mistaken. Right on. You guys are killing me with the audio here. I'm going to go paddock mode on myself. What is going on? What do you guys want from me? Is that better or worse?
You people are freaks. May Allah, you people are dogs. I will go over as usual. I will go on as usual. How do I? <sighs> fucking hell. I don't, the thing is, I don't know. I want people to understand what I'm fucking saying. I'm trying to be to communicate something. What the hell is wrong with you assholes? What are you listening to this shit on? Do you have like fucking Bose headphones? Do you have, are you listening to this on that format that Neil Young insisted on because of its super perfect uh, sound? Are you all fucking Steely Dan fans? Christ. So what's I think is really good about that segment and it is very indicative of uh, James in general is that he understands like narrating history like morally and, and individually creating uh, you know uh, a human response to events but also grounding it always in what was conditioning those events so that you can kind of drain them of the residual uh, – uh, sort of bourgeois sentimentality that accumulates because there's a lot of romance in this book. The way that uh, James describes Toussaint Louverture is incredibly romantic. I mean, that's very intentional. He's trying to build Toussaint up to the level of like a great historic romantic figure like Napoleon or Simone Bolivar. And when he talks about like the power of the masses of slaves, when he talks about the perfidy and awful viperous, uh, evil of the planter class or of the maritime bourgeois or of the British fucking empire. There's always, um, it's always, but that's always in the service of highlighting the real stakes, the real responsibilities, who's really doing what to who. And th- there's no way that the massacre of the whites uh, in 1805 can be understood out of the context that not only had these been the people who'd been slave owners before the war, and the revolution, uh, they were the ones who had happily uh, lived under Toussaint and then gone to watch dogs rip slaves apart with Rochambeau when he was descending into his fucking Kurtz-ass heart of darkness uh, reversion to savagery. I, I, it's too low on phone. I don't have any other way to turn the volume up. So who is responsible for that? And uh, how is Haiti supposed to go on as a society, not try to compete as a nation among nations and therefore have like a productive economy in which the white slave owners are back there in charge of them. Now, what ended up happening, of course, is that they were replaced by black rulers, but that is more socially convivial. It is less of an affront to humanity because of the specific experience of slavery. 
But there was another path that Toussaint wanted to go. Toussaint's vision, because he was at the end of the day one of these enlightenment figures. He was a guy who was as much an embodiment of the moment as Napoleon. Uh, ability, vision coming together with ability who, after deciding to fully commit to to the project of of, uh, full emancipation, after, I would say, so at first I think he was moving from, and James talks about this, he he moved from position, at first when it looked like the slave revolt had petered out, he was willing to exchange his freedom and the freedom for some of the other leaders for the slaves going back into slavery, which is, you know, a betrayal, but for someone who didn't want the country to descend into total bloodshed, who wanted to see it progress socially, there had to be an accommodation. Uh, and that was it. There was the, the offer wasn't accepted. So he said, fuck you. He joined the Spaniards fought for the King uh, because the, the French were trying to reimpose slavery but then when slavery was abolished, first by Santanax and then by the assembly in France, for Toussaint, that was a lifeline. That was the lifeline uh, that, honestly, that like Trotsky and fucking Lenin were hoping would be extended from Germany after the Bolshevik Revolution. They, this was the thing that was going to allow Haiti to develop through the stages of non-racial capitalism to socialism. Now, maybe he wouldn't have thought of it in those terms, but that's where he was pointing himself, which is as progressive as you can be at that stage in history because of the, the lack of development of, of class relationships. Is there a thing I could press to fucking turn this thing up? Ah, fuck. All right, I'm going to turn this back on because I think that made it louder. What about that? Is that louder? So I... I... Uh, people talking about onto one side, you have zero sympathy with me. I am half deaf. I can only hear out of my left ear. I don't fucking give a shit about what side it comes out of, motherfucker. There's only one side. You're being ableist for bringing it up. Boom. I don't need to hear you whining about not being able to hear out of both ears. Bitch, I can never hear out of both ears. Shut the fuck up. Just like you can't. Oh, shut the fuck. All right, never mind. Never mind. You're trolling me and I'm enjoying it too much. Uh, and the tragedy of Toussaint is that he was marching towards that direction, towards that vision of, of a, re- a revolutionary France dedicated to human principles of human equality, uh, extending the hand of, uh, of uh, brotherhood to the new multiracial revolutionary bourgeois of Haiti, the tricolor bourgeois of Haiti, 
creating a new uh, rationalized market-based relationship where people worked for money with no racial discrimination at all and then were able to express themselves through the channels of popular politics eventually. And And you know what? If you got him, if you got him like in an ayahuasca haze and let him see it to the end of that, he would prefer he would have prefer to see a final communist pace. But only, but he knew that that could only come through developing Haitian uh, social structure sufficiently to do that. And what he was pulling against was the fact that after having been fucking uh, slaves for so long. Uh, there was very little economic incentive that uh, the ex-slaves could be given to go back to working in the cane fields because that's what slavery was. Slavery was the cane fields. You paying them doesn't really change the experience. They're working to make sugar that somebody else is going to fucking eat. And even if they get a portion of the profit, which was the the, uh, deal that Toussaint tried to give them, it's still a small recompense for that labor. What they would have liked to have done was worked way less and subsisted. And like a communist subsistence economy could have emerged there. Like there's, especially after the revolution, my God, you could have had a collaborative experience towards that. But Haiti isn't isolated. Haiti isn't all by itself. Haiti is enmeshed in a modern world surrounded by modern powers and a subsistence communist Haiti would not have had the sufficient economic uh, activity and capital formation to resist being overtaken by any of those other powers. They wouldn't be able to put together the structures of government that allow people in the modern world to execute uh, control in their borders and outside of them. The machinery of state that emerged out of capitalist development. And so that is why Toussaint always tried to succor the, 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 uh, the planters. It's why he, resisted calls to declare independence from France. Uh, and it's why he so vigorously reimposed uh, discipline in the plantations so that people were working similar conditions as under slavery, but, you know, less punishing, but, uh, but still not what these people thought of as freedom. Notions of like, uh, of, collective uh, enterprise that would be necessary to keep a state together had to come out of people becoming productive within a capitalist framework and having access to the fruits of it. And then James points out that the fatal flaw, I mean, as, as much as this might have never been possible, and the reaction of Napoleon indicates that it was never possible, uh, but that was a contingent decision and could have gone the other way. And like up until the, that point, Toussaint had every reason to think he might be able to get it done. Uh, but once that happened, once, once Napoleon decided to reimpose French control, 
it became impossible. And Toussaint's big uh, failure, according to James, is that he failed to recognize when uh, it was too late. He failed to recognize that his dream was not going to be possible and that he was going to have to organize the, the people of Haiti for freedom, whatever that meant, or else slavery would be attempted to be reimposed. And then that would lead to a race war, which it did. And he didn't want any of that. He didn't want a race war. He didn't want massacres. He didn't want the, the, the country to descend culturally and socially and economically. He wanted it to progress. But he thought for too long that that was possible, basically. That was his great tragic flaw. Uh, and so he did things like suppress workers' uprisings and execute his popular uh, nephew Moise uh, and refuse to rally people in advance of a French uh, invasion force that he knew was coming. Uh, that was his great flaw. And, and the thing is, is that it was a failure of his, it was not even a failure, it was a, it was a weakness of humanity. It's that he didn't want to do what he was going to have to do. He wanted to create civilized structures of exchange, which meant employer-employee relationships in a market. That was human liberty in that moment. And it was a vision shared by all these guys, Robespierre and Napoleon. That was what they imagined. And that meant that you guaranteed that the person who would end up taking power would be someone like Dessalines, who, I'm sorry, I know it's epic and base that he killed all those white people, but he was not Toussaint in any way. And of course he wasn't. He'd had a much more traumatic life experience than he had been. Toussaint had been a, uh, a, a well-treated uh, driver and then had been free for five years. Dessaline, as James points out, had the, the lashes on his back. So Dessaline didn't have like this expansive vision that Toussaint did, but what he did have was an understanding of the moment more and an understanding of the French more and what they were going to do and the irreconcilable of them, uh, the irreconcilability of them. And so he was the one who won. And the thing is, is like what he was willing to do to, uh, strike back at the British or the French uh, indicates like it just a absolute coldness. Like he suppressed French uh, anti-French rebellions uh, on behalf of the French, on behalf of Rochambeau while he was torturing people in the pits. uh, But until he turned on him, I mean, he alienated enough actual Haitians that uh, his, uh, uh, he was foiled in his attack on, uh, uh, Port-au-Prince by a maroon band tipping the French off to his arrival. But that isn't... But, like, you get Dessaline, not uh, Toussaint because of Fr- the French decision. Now, there's there's two... There's a couple of, of interesting questions here, though. So let's say Napoleon changes his mind. And says, "Let's let's let's let Toussaint be uh, enshrined in power because he's the only one who can rule it." Like Napoleon was super racist, obviously, uh, 
and that was a thing that influenced his thinking. Josephine, his wife, was a fucking planter. Like he had that, and he also didn't really care about that the colonial policy as much, and didn't know as much. Uh, but there was a somebody. There should have been somebody who could have argued to him uh, that it was just not possible to hold the island without Toussaint, because that's what every single one of his fucking uh, French uh, officials who came back from uh, Haiti had told him over and over again. And I, he was just, I guess, too fucking racist to accept it. And, but anyway, let's say that he changes his mind, which he could have. He did write a letter uh, giving Toussaint command when he thought he might be able to join with Russia to attack India. Uh, but let's say he says, fine, we'll give it to you. And Toussaint gets to carry out his experiment. What he's going to have to do, because remember, Enshrining property rights is at the foundation of the modern state and modern and modern notions of legality that he's trying to impose. That means that the people who are going to be getting the majority of the uh, surplus of this sugarcane operation are going to still be the white planters. I mean, not all of them, a lot of the, but some of them are going to be generals in, in Toussaint's army now, but there's also just going to be the whites and, there's going to be this continued alienated condition of labor that is going to continue to alienate people. Uh, and the question would have been, how will Toussaint handle that? And it really is why the only thing that makes sense from Napoleon and Toussaint's position is to join together to launch a motherfucking invasion of North America from New Orleans. It's the only thing that makes sense. Because when you have a situation where you have a developing social uh, relationship or a, a developing uh, capitalist economy, um, you have a developing capitalist economy, you have a exploited proletariat that that exploited proletariat saying alienation has to be directed somewhere. And it's some combination of inside and outside through repression, reform, and war. Those are the three ways the state can respond to social alienation of capitalism. And it's some con- it's never all of one, usually. It's some combination of the three. Internal political reform that redistributes socially and not rationally, pulls away from the commandment of profit, just the repression of the state against those who resist it, and then the outward venting, first in, in America, colonial war, and then or uh, uh, Indian war, and then finally colonial war. And so that means if you have mounting alienation among the uh, planters of Haiti, some of it would be directed towards, uh, there would be some rep- repression, of course, some of it would be directed towards uh, reform towards democracy but there would also be this desire to create a project for everybody and that project could have been marching through the underbelly of America to help cr- turn the uh, Caribbean into the French Mediterranean because at this point Napoleon is basically fucked in England or in the UK Europe rather because uh, the Mediterranean is at that effect it's by that point effectively a British lake 
And if he gets a crescent across the Caribbean, he is able to exert uh, maritime power, which he has to be able to do to compete with the fucking British, because this is basically a fight over who is going to be in charge of capitalism, the French or the English. That is what the Napoleonic Wars were. Who's going to get the stick? Who gets the stick? Whose ruling class gets to wrap their hand around the stick of power and slowly be turned into reptiles? And of course, the British win for a number of reasons, one of them being that they are more reptilian. They got it earlier. But a lot of it is because we speak fucking English, because they got and held North America. The French had fought for North America. They had a bigger chunk of it than England did until the French and Indian War when they lost Canada. And then... It's the loss of, uh, of, then they lose that and it's over. At that point, the English have it. And they're going to they're gonna win. And they had. They have. That's why, you know, your romantic counterfactual dream is to go back and, uh, and have the frogs win. Because they had the French Revolution. Because the English had, instead, the English Civil War, which is a bunch of fucking freak-ass Puritans doing a giant uh, self-mortification ritual. A bunch of ch- just sickos filtering this, this rifle execution of a, of a, of a, uh, of a tyrant with, with some religious horseshit about, a, a f- about being in the Book of Revelation. The key, people who carried out... The people... There was... The English Civil War was won by QAnon. There are these people within the inner circle of the post-Stuart uh, protectorate, the people who'd cut the head off of the king, who were called fifth monarchist men, who believed that England was destined to be uh, enshrined like the uh, a monarch who would then usher in Kingdom on kingdom of uh, the kingdom of heaven on earth. Whereas the French Revolution is liberty, equality, fraternity, motherfucker. Those are some fucking words, man. But that's why they lost. If you want to, if it, that's why we're where we are, because that was never on the table, really, not in this world. Because. They were never going to be more efficient. So I'm going to wrap up now, but I just want to say one more thing about Black Jacobins, which I hope everyone enjoyed if they read it, and I recommend they read it if they haven't. Uh, A really great paragraph that I think says something very important about the structural incentives I talked about earlier to bring it all back to like how we're in a system where once you are within a, once you, not even once you don't put it that way. Not once you are in a position, once a position exists within a bureaucracy, it will be filled by people who will do what it wants. It wants because it has an institutional prerogative that is independent of human will. And the person who, 
is in that job will do it. If they don't like doing it anymore, they will stop doing it. Somebody else will start doing it. And it's because the people within these structures overwhelmingly will always filter everything they experience in life through their best material interest, which is to keep the position they have if they care about it, which most of them do because of we have nothing else to do but sell our labor. And this is talking about uh, a French officer who had served under uh, Toussaint for a lot of the period of the war with the British, who, like many of the French white uh, officers who served under Toussaint, loved him and thought he was a goddamn genius. I mean, that's really the thing that James likes to point out, because this book is historically contingent. On, it's historically situated. It's, he's writing it in the 30s as a direct response to like the racist understanding of the war. Like Lothrop Stoddard, the guy who wrote the, uh, the rising tide of color against world white supremacy, wrote a book about the Haitian revolution, about how it was basically uh, the white race destroying itself uh, and allowing itself to be destroyed, uh, to be massacred by, by savagery, basically. Um, so he was directing, he was directly responding to that. And one of his big pieces of evidence is, of, of the of the sophistication of the Haitian Revolution and how it represented the humanity, it expressed the humanity of those who participated in it, was the French response to Toussaint. So anyway, this guy, even though uh, his Toussaint's uh, office, Toussaint's soldiers during a rebellion uh, had put him in jail and he got knocked around a little bit and he still loved Toussaint. But... Uh, so Toussaint is starting to realize that the French aren't going to allow him to maintain his position and let him do what he knew he needed to do to keep things on an even keel. Uh, and Vincent, before he sends him away, is begging Toussaint to, to just uh, to go back on his pledge to create sort of a, a unilateral dictatorship on the island because he believed in his heart that they didn't have anything to be afraid of. He was one of the voices telling Toussaint that they didn't have anything to be afraid of because there's no way France would ever try to bring back slavery because they'd won the goddamn revolution. So, yeah, so he leaves for France. Uh, he's telling him, don't do independence, whatever you do. Uh, and he wrote a letter from Philadelphia on the way to France telling Toussaint, don't do independence. Vincent did all that a man could do. Even in trying to detach Christophe from Toussaint, he was acting, as he thought, in the best interests of France and of San Domingo. To him, the restoration of slavery was unthinkable. He expected it as little as millions of British people expected the intrigues of Baldwin, Hoare, and Eden with Laval and Mussolini after the denial of arms to Abyssinia and the grandiose promises of fidelity to the League of Nations and the idea of collective security. Many an honest subordinate has in this way been the unwilling instrument of the inevitable treachery up above. The trouble is that when faced with the brutal reality, he goes in the end with his own side, and by the very confidence which his integrity created does infinitely more harm than the open enemy. That bit about the confidence in his own integrity that creates. And that is true. There are so many people who do daily murder to the earth, who believe in their hearts that their values align with human goodness. They are not the dead-eyed musk nihilists who want to drink everyone's blood. They really believe we can get to that democratic 
uh, uh, post-war Jetson City Vision future. They really think that. And they think the fact that they are in that system and they think they believe that is proof that the system works, is proof that they're committed to the system that keeps them in it, is worth maintaining, and keeps them making these decisions that are always the least bad ones that anyone could make. Yes, this is a bad thing. It's going to hurt people, but it's going to hurt fewer people than something else, and other people are doing other things that will make it all okay. We're all participating in our own way, and we're all making the world a better place. And the fact that we're in these systems at all with these beliefs means that we will stay there. And that means that when the, our superiors, who remember, are higher up and therefore literally less human, whose blood runs colder, who do not believe the fantasies that you believe because they can't afford to, they cannot allow their decisions to differ from the coldest decision that the machine would demand at all. So they cannot amuse themselves with morality. And that means that they're going to operate according to the machine and tell you what to do that will help the machine. And then you carry it out thinking you're helping people because you think people are telling you what to do. And people have not been telling us what to do for a while now. And our whole civil breakdown is people coming to terms as their ability to affect the control of their environment goes away, that they never actually had it. So there you go. This is not black pill. I know it's dumb to say that. But it really isn't. Because we are describing a system as it exists. Using the people who exist within it. But the system is evolving and every day is responding to the increased entropy within it in ways that cannot be predicted. Entropy is entering the system in ways that is producing unpredictable outcomes. And we are all still human beings within these systems who have, as long as we're going to be alive, the imperative, the unchallengeable imperative to make sense of what we're doing here and why we're here and what's good and what's bad and then move from there. We have to all make those decisions. Some of those, and those decisions are made every moment. And we're making them every moment. We're making the world every moment anew. Like, as I said, black pill is not a thing that you uh, don't take. It, is, it, it requires, to, then it must be taken as soon as possible, honestly, and then digest it because it doesn't tell you what to do now. 
if you say no, it tells me to do uh, hedonism and nihilism. Well, how's that working out for you, as Sarah Palin would say? All right. Well, I'm going to definitely talk to Chris about what to do to fix this. Maybe I wasn't close enough to the microphone. I don't know. I hope people could hear it. All right. Bye-bye.